How's it, everyone? Welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree, Skype edition, self-isolation edition, late night edition. Hashtag real corona hours. Uh, I'm Nicholas Lorimer, Easy. and I'm my, uh, my co-host, Mr. Gabriel Krauser. How's it, guys? How's it, ladies? How's it, people? So, so due to a pretty busy day, I mean, it's actually interesting. Uh, we're not in the office anymore, and yet in some ways we are working harder than we normally do. I suppose it's because, you know, the world is in crisis. Yeah, I think that is it. Uh, maybe maybe also we just uh, get along too well in the office. So when we're in the office, we kind of end up uh, – or maybe we hate each other. Like usually we do this podcast <laughs> at like 12 or 5 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. And now it's sort of like 10 o'clock at night on a Friday. And we couldn't do it much earlier because we, we've been pretty well, – Especially you, because you've been with the, our, best, our best and brightest, thinking up cunning ways that we can stop the great plague of our time, or at least mitigate the damage. It's a war. It is, it is a war. I'm actually trying to write an article about that. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you if, when it's actually finished. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess all we can really talk about, since we're currently sitting at home on Skype in the middle of the night, is um, this dang virus. As I keep yeah, going. so 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 I want to say uh, this is radically different to last week. Last weekend, I, I it still seemed like South Africa was kind of in the clear. Like there was definitely some cases, but it, it, they weren't very widespread, and they seemed to be sort of well known and well tracked. So a friend of mine was getting married on Saturday in Newark, just outside Cape Town. So I flew down to that, and it was the opposite of like what my life has been since because the bride is Swiss and so naturally like I don't know if they're wealthy for Swiss people but they're definitely wealthy for here so they can all like afford to fly internationally and come along so there were like 10 Swiss people and 15 or so South Africans many of whom are journalists actually because the groom bride's groom is very good like friend of mine anyway we after the ceremony which is very beautiful and very informal got a bit tipsy, everyone is in the jacuzzi together, everyone is like hugging each other, uh, very sloppy, dudes were sort of kissing each other on the cheek and on the mouth and congratulating each other. Uh, so tell me, have you had any uh, have you had so flu-like symptoms? <laughs> <laughs> because it does not sound like you were socially isolating very well. <laughs> We didn't. We were so off grid. We didn't know that things had changed here. And then, and then they, the Swiss were all very worried on the on the Sunday. And then we had a Sunday sort of after party where it was like more of the same. And then on the Monday, they're like, we don't know if we can fly back in two weeks. But thank God for them. The, the they're all going for an after party in Nature's Valley. So, oh, okay. So the good people of Nature's Valley will get to suffer the plague. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you're wondering, um, Switzerland is the, I think, seventh highest country in the world in total cases per million people. Uh, so basically per so capita. So it might be bad to be in South Africa and like self-quarantine in Nature's Valley for the next month and a half. I mean, yeah, that's, you, not, that's, not, that's not a bad that's idea bad. at all. Um, well, I've I've had a much more reserved thing. I started developing this unpleasant cough I have, which I'm pretty sure is not COVID, uh, last weekend. And I've just kind of been sitting around working, not really doing much since then, because I don't want to take the risk of either getting something while I'm sick or giving something away if I am infectious. So, you know, I guess so it's not that's nice such now. a Yeah, that is such a crucial distinction to highlight. My sister put it like this. Uh, you've got the fear scale, how afraid am I of getting this virus? And then you've got the guilt scale, which is how afraid am I of doing something that puts other people at risk? And I yeah. think you and I are probably quite a lot higher on the guilt scale than on the fear scale because we're young dudes, we're pretty healthy, we're well, pretty... <laughs> speak for yourself. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, you know, not to be too flippant, but I don't have the greatest lungs in the world just because of genetics. Uh, and you're a smoker. 
So yeah. you know, we're not we're not the uh, uh, no. So I'm you know morbidly obese. So it's not exactly like uh, yes. with a tip top of our of our of our no, age bracket. No, we're not we're not super we're not the healthiest specimens in the world. But I, but I, I suppose I was also speaking. Sorry, I guess we've got to be careful of like talking at the same time. <laughs> guy. No, go ahead, Gabriel. I, I, I was also thinking about characters, and here I will speak for myself. Like, I just um, I'm, I'm still quite young in spirit, I think, in the sense that I, I walk around Hillbrow and Yeovil a lot, and um, <laughs> yeah, I, I smoke and I do a bunch of things that clearly show that I haven't come to terms with my own mortality in a practical way. And I feel that too in my, like my brain spends a lot of time tracking the buttons when I was in yeah. the airport, looking at the, at the nodes that everyone touches. And it was, I, I didn't, uh, I felt very stressed, but it wasn't stressed like I'll get it. It was stressed like, what if I get this and then pass it on to my mom yeah. on the other end? No, exactly. I feel exactly the same way. And you realize how disruptive it actually is to your life. Um, suddenly, or the most mundane of things, you know, opening a door becomes a sort of emotional experience in a way. Yeah, yeah. So one of the, one of the uh, concepts that I wanted to kind of start this out with um, is epistemic magnetism, which is a which phrase is that was coined it's a, by it's, it's a five dollar word <laughs> it definitely is that um and it sounds pretentious but you know in south africa we we have a newspaper universe in which people have been talking about epistemology for years and years because of de the decolon the decolonizing movement is all about decolonizing your mind there's white epistemology there's male epistemology uh not really sure what those things end up meaning Epistemology is like how you get to know things or how you think about things. And epistemic magnetism was this guy, David Lewis, a Princeton philosopher, his idea uh, in the 20th century that there are certain kinds of concepts that somehow suck all of the oxygen in the room around towards them. It's like they suck all of the other concepts towards them. So that it feels like you want to explain something by everything else. Sorry, you want to explain everything else by this one thing. This one thing explains everything. So that would be like race would be an example of that in South Africa. Exactly. So people who've got the racial fixation, you can be talking about Teletubbies, you can be talking about rugby, you can be talking about the economy, you can be talking about some business, whatever it is, they're going to they're gonna explain the result as either a triumph or a failure of the race narrative that they're committed to. And for some people, religion is like that. Matthew yeah. Arnold was a bit of a racist. Uh, maybe the greatest uh, literary critic uh, uh, of the English language in the 19th century. He's rated. Um, uh, he was he was very brilliant guy in a lot of ways, and he was quite religious actually. Um, and he 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 liked to say, you know, one of the great dangers with religion is that it turns out there's this paradox where if you spend all of your time thinking about things in religious terms, you end up undermining your own uh, religion and your own spiritual sense, like you've got to sometimes let go of that frame of thought and just think about the numbers as numbers or the apple as an apple or whatever it may be. Uh, so epistemic magnetism is definitely something that I think everyone is going to be feeling with regards to coronavirus. Like we don't want it, you know, everything kind of comes back to it for now. And uh, so we're mindful of that and, and we don't want to be stuck in that forever. But I do think while it's relevant, there are, there are some things to talk about. Yeah, uh, there was actually uh, someone I was following online who said that it's very strange and almost surreal, but um, it was like every time you, heard, you overheard a part of a conversation, it was always about the same thing as they were walking through a public place. Um, and it is a sort of strange experience to suddenly be in this sort of uh, – I mean, one of, the, one of the things that's been going on in the world for the past 20 years as the internet has become more important – is that our personal experiences have drifted further and further apart. Like we don't have as much of a shared culture as perhaps yep. we used to when there were four TV channels and one radio station. Um, and now suddenly we've been jerked back into a world where everyone shares pretty much the same concern. We all have an opinion about the, the dang virus and uh, we're all responding to it in a certain way. Now, 
you know, some of us may even be dismissing it, but they still have a strong opinion on it. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. It's like a year ago, no one, practically no one had an opinion about the coronavirus in general, and literally no one had an opinion about this Nuvo SARS 2.0 coronavirus, aka COVID-19. Uh, and now practically everyone in the world has an opinion. Uh, I saw I'd, I had a brief chat with a homeless guy in Deval Park in Cape Town. He wanted to talk about coronavirus. When I was at the office on Wednesday, I stepped outside and the security guard was listening to radio in a language I don't understand. And it was yabba, 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 do, yabba, 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 do. Ah, oh, corona, yabba, 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 do. Uh, so, you know, it's like in Ubers, I've had the same experience. It really is some, it's, yeah, it's a great uh, moment of unity. Uh, of it, all mankind, not even just in one country. Hmm. Um, and I think it does, it does feel a lot like, I suppose, what it must have been like when people experienced the Second World War. Except yeah. there, you know, the enemy was flesh and blood. You could see them. Uh, in this case, the enemy is basically some fat around some DNA, uh, which <laughs> is far more terrifying, actually. <laughs> well, accepting that, you know, okay, so let's talk about how coronavirus kills people. What it does is it strips away the outer lining on your lungs. And that kind of freaks out your immune system and then your immune system goes in there and it goes buck wild and it doesn't just kill the virus it also kills the healthy cells and that's really what ends up stripping away the outer defense and then bacteria get into your lungs or just the immune system sort of kind of screws up your lungs ability and other organs ability eventually to do their job and then you die and we all know what this looks like when you get stung by a bee, right? People have died of bee stings, but, you know, one or two bees can kill a person. But it's not because the, there's so much poison in a bee sting that you die. It's because the allergic reaction is such an overreaction from inside of your body that your body end, ends up killing itself. And you get the antihistamine sh shot and you see the swelling go down almost with every heartbeat. I've seen it in myself. And I think that the body politic is like that too. You've got this virus, which is an alien, inhuman thing. But part of the danger is that the immune system overreacts and ends up destroying the bad and the good. Uh, and, and that, you know, the enemy becomes flesh and blood because we lose our sense of reason. And, and maybe that's a good segue into one of the things that I want to talk about. And this is not tinfoil conspiracy stuff, but it is going against the grain of the mainstream. And it's a, it's a fight that's been had on many levels, but I think one level to focus in on it is a fight between one of the top epidemiologists at Stanford University and one of the top epidemiologists at Harvard University, who seem to have different ideas about what the response should be based on a shared idea that is quite shocking about how much we actually don't know at this stage about how deadly and how sickly this virus actually is. I think this is a point that people, especially those who are not in sort of medical or scientific fields, uh, a lot of people have a very weird reaction to, to, to scientists. They either kind of trust them completely or they're just sort of generally skeptical of them as experts. Um, and I have sympathy. I think that the truth is, and this is another one of those boring answers, but I think the truth is maybe perhaps a little bit in the middle. Um, you know, medicine, and if anyone has recently had a, a loved one, as I have, uh, go through the medical procedure, the world of medicine, you know, through hospitals and operations and stuff, you realize that an enormous amount of it is kind of trial and error, and it's a little bit of an art rather than a science in some ways. I mean, yeah. obviously, the, it is based on science, but like uh, doctors often don't necessarily know what's going to work and they have to try a lot of things and they have to play around with stuff. And it's very hard to gather data. Um, you know, you can do a million tests, but you can't always find out exactly what the cause of some particular phenomenon is. And yeah. that's definitely the case in this coronavirus. In fact, we're, we're expecting the medical community to know a lot more than is reasonable, considering that this thing is incredibly new. 
Um, it's going to take a very long time, actually, months, maybe even years, for the medical community to really get a grip on what this virus is, looks like, does, why it targets particular groups of people. For example, I don't think anyone really knows why uh, young people are so unaffected by it. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, we thought young people were almost totally immune. And now there's stories from France and Italy and partly America where it seems like maybe some young people, maybe the death rates in young people are higher than we thought. Although that might be that there's young people who thought they were more immune than they really are. And so although it's like the chances are like a hundred times less or a thousand times less for a young person to actually fall ill by getting the virus. If many, many more young people are going to clubs and hanging out and, and sneezing on each other, then they end up being overrepresented in the ICU. So it's confusing. But shall I, shall I get a little bit into the Harvard? Yeah, yeah. The great universities battling it out. So the guy at Stanford is his name is John P. A. Ioannidis, and he's an epidemiologist and a statistician. And in an earlier, like a year ago or two years ago, he was uh, involved in another tussle that I won't get into. And he wrote a letter to the Danish uh, health authorities. And in there, he claimed that he's like, one of the top most cited, that he's the top most cited academic uh, in his field that's alive. And I looked it up and I couldn't find exactly, but I found a sort of ranking by pr professorial citations, sorry, just by academic citations. And he was in the top 100. And it was like Karl Marx at number 17 and Hegel at number 12. And, you know, it was like, it really... <laughs> They were mostly dead and like, so he really is quite a head honcho. And he wrote an article for Stat News for a first opinion, they call it in their section. And the headline is a fiasco in the making. As the coronavirus pandemic takes hold, we are making decisions without reliable data. And he's got a couple of good lines. Um, his opening, you know, he's quite a hard-hitting polemicist. He starts by saying the current coronavirus disease, COVID-19, has been called a once-in-a-life, once-in-a-century pandemic, but it may also be a once-in-a-century evidence fiasco. Sorry, ahead, sorry about that. We're just trying to tell when the other one gets to talk. Um, yeah, so uh, for what it's worth, and I, we'll get into this a little bit later as you finish explaining this, but I thought that that entry point of his article was fantastic uh, in the sense that uh, the data really is unreliable and it takes data scientists, you know, like medical professionals, quite a while to shift through this stuff. I mean, we only found out the real death toll of the swine flu epidemic um, a couple of years later. Yeah. So, so, so the, the, the key problem is that, you know, it's just such a simple mathematical problem. You've got a numerator and a denominator. You know, you've got the divide line in the middle and the thing on the top and the thing on the bottom. And the thing on the top is the number of people that die or the number of people that need to go on respirators or the number of people that have organ failure. And the denominator is the number of people that are infected by the disease. And the numerator, we're pretty good at knowing. The denominator, we're not that good at knowing. And he says, uh, we don't know if we're failing to capture infections by a factor of three or 300. Three months after the outbreak emerged, most countries, including the US, lack the ability to test a large number of people and no countries have reliable data on the prevalence of the virus in a representative random sample of the general population. So he then goes on to sort of say, there's an interesting test case, which is the Diamond Cruise the Diamond Princess cruise ship, where the passengers were quarantined for quite a while and the Japanese got flack for doing this, keeping them on the ship. But it does create like this kind of ring fence thing where there's like a single entry point for the virus and you see how far it goes. And uh, he says, you know, the death rate, uh, projecting the Diamond Cruise Princess mortality rate onto the age structure of the US population, the death rate 
among people affected would be one, 0.125%, whereas like the CDC has been quoting and the WHO have been quoting like numbers like 3.4%. And we'll get into what the difference is in real terms, uh, but, but it's quite drastic. Um, but then he says, since the estimate is based on extremely thin data, there were just seven deaths among the 700 infected passengers and crew. The real death rate could be could stretch from five times lower, 0.025%, to five times higher, 0.625%. And but then he goes on to say, you know, the passengers who are inf infected might die later. Tourists might have different frequencies of chronic diseases. Might be worse. Then the general population, they're older and, and, they, and they might be like more, uh, there might be various things about their lifestyle that make them more prone to mortality and morbidity, morbidity being like the rate of, of severe disease. And so he says, and I'm quoting here, adding these extra sources of uncertainty, reasonable estimates for the case fatality ratio in the general US population vary from 0.05% to 1%. Now, a 0.05% case would make this like, as he puts it, it would it would kill people, lots of people. But if no one had tracked this disease from the start and it killed 0.05% of the people that it kills, by the end of the season, we'd be like, you know, this flu season was, I quote, a bit worse than the usual one. Like, definitely a bit, sorry, a bit worse than average. Not the worst we've even seen in the last 10 years, but definitely worse than average. Whereas a 1%, which is only a third of the 3.4% that a lot of people have been talking about, would kill 50 million people, which is like Spanish flu levels. So the uncertainty, according to him, the uncertainty is like somewhere between slightly worse, not corona itself, but that overall, if we just did nothing this year's... Uh, uh, diseases from re respiratory disease death rate would be slightly worse than average to all the way like worst pandemic since the combustible engine, uh, you know, since the Spanish flu, since 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 World since, War One. Since World War One, yeah. Um, and I think that that is a that is a reasonable concern because we are seeing that the economic damage is going to be pretty big for this. Um, although, it, may I go off on a tangent slightly? about this please do the longer we're in quarantine and crisis mode the less bad the economic damage will be and my reasoning for this is that the magic of capitalism means it is but the magic of capitalism uh is that the market actually will remold itself in a lot of ways to cover uh these problems so we've already seen that, like, for example, Amazon is talking about hiring 100,000 new staff to help deal with delivery systems. Um, other industries are really, <coughs> excuse me, um, pushing, uh, pushing themselves to innovate in new ways. Uh, my local restaurants, for example, are now, who, who never used to do delivery before, are now switching entirely to being delivery type companies. So if we went, if like, we knew that for 50 years, for example, in a sort of crazy example, uh, everyone had to basically live in this sort of isolated world. Um, we'd actually see an economy develop that was almost entirely able to deal with it, I think. Um, but the problem is that the global economy is set up in a very particular way to deal with a very particular set of circumstances. This is why, for example, we don't actually have that many ICU beds. And that when you have a short, sharp shock to the system that jumbles everything up, uh, and forces everyone to change their behavior very suddenly. That's when you get real economic fall off because the market isn't able to correct at the speed of the change. Um, and so people will go bust and uh, disruptions will happen that will not be pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think I think that is a concern. And one of the things that he speaks to here is that like the flatten the curve thing is a good idea, but you've got to be careful. Like if you have too much of a, uh, yeah, I suppose this is this is where I, so hold on, let me take a step back. This is where I agree with you and I think that Ioannidis is maybe going a step too far. He says flatten the curve sounds great, but envisage this scenario, you have a very sharp, sharp shock in the medical demand on ICU beds and so for a couple of weeks, anyone who has a heart attack dies 
anyone who has, you know, like preventable deaths happen over that period because there's just no hospital beds available. But then it's over and done with and there's herd immunity established and, and, and you get a reversion back to normal versus like this slow simmering, um, the hospitals are overstrained for months and months because it's the curve is flattened, but not to below the ability of the hospitals to meet it. So for months and months and months, you've got preventable deaths happening. The second might be more likely. It's, 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 it's kind of hard to know either way. And, it, and part of this is because economics sometimes, uh, I think, doesn't take time into account sufficiently in the sense that things happen in phases. And so something that's a, something that's a bad idea if you're going to do it forever can be a good idea for now and vice versa. Uh, and this puts us in a sticky situation. So I just want to lay out the sort of counter, the response that comes from Harvard to Stanford. So Stanford says, don't do anything because any disruptions are going to cause unnecessary economic stress and we should just let this thing ride out and do what we usually do, try and develop a vaccine, try and help particularly the old and the sickly people that like go to hospital. You know, you've got to try and save lives. But in terms of, uh, changing the sort of way that we get along as a society, leave it be. And the comeback from Mark Lipsick, Professor Mark Lipsick at Harvard is, we know enough now to act decisively against COVID-19. Social distancing is a good place to start. And his, uh, he starts out, I think it's a, it's a brilliant article in a lot of ways. He starts out by saying, that there was this controversial first opinion by John Ioannidis arguing that we lack good enough data to know what we're doing here. He's absolutely right on one point. The US has done fewer tests per capita so far than any rich country in the world, which is a bit of a jab, um, and critical details of epidemiology. So let me read out where they agree. Many critical details of the epidemiology, including the absolute number of cases, the role of children in transmission, role of pre-symptomatic transmission and the risk of dying from infection with SARS-CoV-2 remain uncertain. The last one is the most important. The risk of dying from SARS-CoV-2 remains uncertain. Even a guy who's punching back at the skeptic maverick scientist Ioannidis is agreeing we don't really know. Uh, and then he goes on to say very politely, you know, he thinks this contrarian article started this guy, which is important. He phoned him. He finds they agree about a lot. Like, these are civilized people. They're not out there to humiliate one another. But uh, Lip, Lip, uh, Mark's, Lipstick's point is uh, that he thinks we know enough to act and that there's an imperative to act swiftly and strongly and that the first action should be social distancing and the second action should be uh, trying to find a virus, not in, like, an order of time to to do it, but you know, in an order of time that is gonna come out. Now, what I find curious about his response is that he never challenges, he sort of speaks about coffins piling up in Wuhan and in Northern Italy because the funerals are canceled, the people are dying. But that seems to be speaking actually, if you think about it to the kinds of social distancing things that we're not allowed to have funerals. And yeah, some people have died at this stage it's hundreds and thousands, not hundreds of thousands. Uh, so it's not like that far out of the norm. Uh, and, and he sort of goes on to make some really good points about uh, different responses from various countries. He, he, he quite likes uh, London, the Imperial College of London's analysis and their uh, sort of feeling that there's two choices to be made, either long-term social distancing or overwhelmed healthcare systems. And both are kind of unappealing. Long-term social distancing, as much as it might, the economy might work around it in the ways Nick just described. Like people might get depressed. And I think from the political point of view, if you have to force that social distancing, the tension between the government enforcing social distancing and people who eventually get miffed with it could create an erosion of trust scenario that's quite tricky. So just before, let me just quickly finish this point. So if it's either of those choices, they both seem uncomfortable, but at least with the long-term social distancing, then you can hold out for a virus, for a vaccine to come through.
Uh, and so that's why he chose that one. I think there is another problem with the sort of doing nothing strategy, which is that if some people are saying that it's a calamity and there's videos coming out, and I saw one of these today, actually, it was Sky uh, News reporters going through one of the overwhelmed hospitals in Italy, and it is, you know, horrifying. Beds yeah. just stacked up against the walls, people on ventilators everywhere, um, doctors basically having to just let people die, that kind of thing. It looks yeah. really, really grim and shocking and terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and if those kind of stories are coming out and the government has decided to do you know, nothing or to mitigate rather than to, to block, people will go a bit berserk um, because just as much as people will get really upset from being forced to socially isolate for a long time, people on the other end of the spectrum who are very concerned about this disease will be very, very upset with governments around the world uh, if they are seen to not be doing enough. So. Politicians are kind of caught in this impossible situation. All their options are bad, and they're going to face backlash from people no matter what they do. Yeah, and again, it's a fear versus guilt thing. So the guys who are low in the fear spectrum and low in the guilt spectrum, they're going to get pissed off at the government for stopping them from doing what they want to do. And if they're higher on the fear spectrum, but they figure that this is not particularly dangerous, then you've got them high fear, low guilt, also ready to burn shit up. Like Nahawu is the best example of this. It's the, it's the National Educators and Health Workers Union in South Africa, and they just totally refused to cancel their strike uh, on the basis that, you know, gathering in the streets and sneezing on each other and spitting on each other while they shout terrible things about white monopoly capital. They were like, we don't care if this is going to make people sick and die because, you know, it's much more important to compete literally for 0.5% of a wage increase. And it's not like 0.5 above nothing. It's 0.5 above inflation. So it's above like either 7% plus one, which is what they want, or 7% plus 0.05, which is the government's offering. They're like, no, nah, that extra half a percent, that's going to make all the difference. We need to go and, and flip and screw the virus. Uh, so What was it that they said? Uh, we're not going to allow... They, they say that the 0.5% is the difference between their workers um, living comfortably and starving at home. Yeah. So, like, irrational, guiltless, fearless people would only be emboldened if it turns out, you know, that some epidemiologists are saying this thing is not so bad, and that could create a crisis. On the other hand, as you say, the guilt-ridden people who, like, um, this is a major concern, and look at, the, look at people dying. And, and can't we, you know, how, how hard is it to just wash your hands a lot and work from home a lot and all this kind of stuff? Uh, the, the, it's a, I, think, I think we're in the early days of that tension. Um, and I think it's going to probably get worse, but it might not. And one of the worries is that it doesn't because we repress information. So one of the conversations I've been having a lot in myself sort of isolation here with two other people is, you know, would you tell a lie? Would you, would it be worth lying about how bad this is to say that it's worth worse than it really is? Because that might encourage people to behave well uh, in terms of social distancing or is the truth always the right thing to go for? And, and, and my sense is that because you are, or because it is always attention, because there's no such thing as a free lunch. There's always this. There's always going to be some people who are leaning one way and some leaning the other. The 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 best guarantee is the truth, and it is the thing we should hew to. And so we should try and figure out ongoingly with greater detail and greater certainty. We should narrow that band. If one, if this scientist really is as good as he seems to be, and he thinks we're sitting at an uncertainty between zero point zero five percent and and 50 million people dying at least, and it could be worse, like we need to narrow that and be more confident about where we're lying. No, yeah, but so I want to segue again, because Nicholas, who comes from politicians, a political dynasty, uh, <laughs> has set us up very well <laughs> by, by observing that, we, that our politicians are in an impossible place in many regards. And, and so they deserve our sympathy and our positive regard. And I haven't heard, you know, we don't do daily polls in South Africa like people do in America 
by presidential popularity. But I would be hugely surprised if it didn't show a sharp spike in favor of Ramaphosa and in favor of the ANC at the moment. Because on the radio, hanging out in the streets, like a lot of people who haven't been particularly sympathetic, have in the last while been sympathetic. And I think that's appropriate kind of centrist position is that guys are in a very tough position and they're trying quite hard to deal with this emergency. Having said that. Having said that. <laughs> to get there's, back there's to my big asterisk on that. <laughs> there's a huge asterisk on that. In terms of my point about the, about the, the body politic, you know, the virus not killing you, the, the, you know, your own immune system can kill you. I am very, I think South Africa is on the cusp of potential disaster. So we entered this virus in a crisis. This is a crisis on top of a crisis. Before the virus came, we were running a GDP deficit of 6.8%, which is like, in human terms, it's like you're borrowing twice as much money as you earn every month, you know? It's, it's not, it's, it's different for the, the percentages that you can be going into extra debt every year as a government is different to what it can be as an individual. And 6.8% is just crazily unsustainable. We, on top of that, have a debt to GDP ratio, which has doubled in the last 10 years. We've doubled the debt in the last 10 years in, in the ratio to GDP. If you, if you take it in, you know, in pure absolute RAND terms, it's much worse than that. We have an air, you know, aircraft, uh, you know, airline businesses around the world are going into major strain because of the virus. SAA was Super decrepit bankrupt. and bankrupt and has been bailed out like 50 billion RAND in the last 10 years. Like it was already completely... I'm trying to not use a swear word here, Nick. It was, <laughs> uh, it was a dwell. Yeah, it, it, it was not in a good place. Um, and, you know, I think if you ever wondered why you need to save money or why you need to have responsible fiscal policies, uh, at this current crisis is the reason. Yeah. So the thing is, we were in a crisis and now we've got a crisis on top of a crisis. And one of my chief worries at the moment is that the opportunity will be used via a mechanism called epistemic magnetism. No one's going to use the word, but they're going to use the idea of being like, well, everyone's mind is stuck to coronavirus. And so all of the problems that we have from here on in, we're going to blame on coronavirus. And that way, we're going to avoid looking in the mirror and being like, well, some of the problem was us. And so we need to change our behavior. So the analogy that's been going through my head, uh, and this is partly because one of the guys at the wedding I was at uh, was a drug addict who went to rehab. And he was like, you know, here's what needs to happen. You're a drug addict, you screw up your life. And then you look in the mirror one day and you're like, doing another line of cocaine might make me feel okay for a moment, but it's really part of the problem. I need to go for a few weeks and and submit my sovereignty or my agency to an outside party to get advice to get off the thing and to and to confront my demons that's the right way to go about it but we share a friend who went about it the other way drug addict gets in a car accident because they're flying too high go to hospital which effectively puts them through a rehabilitation process because they're off the drugs for a couple of weeks while they're going through surgeries and all that jazz and then through the recuperation and then they come out of it like the guy who comes out of rehab for the first month they're like yeah i shouldn't really be doing drugs it's not a great thing to do but unlike the guy who deliberately chose to go to rehab they're like you know but really now and then they're like you know, that accident wasn't entirely my fault. You know, if the other guy wasn't driving so quickly and it hadn't been raining, then it wouldn't have happened. And so you kind of skirt the responsibility for the screw up away from the bit that wasn't in your control onto the thing that wasn't in your control. And then you don't take control. You just fall into the same pattern where you start doing the drugs again because you feel sorry for yourself because how unfair is it that, you know, I lost my big toe in this car accident because actually the rain was raining and some other guy didn't drive slowly when they should have. And, and and that's the kind of situation I feel like South Africa is in. South Africa is a drug addict. We're addicted to 
um, a patronage network that we've talked about on the last podcast. It's it's like an addiction. It's sort of you get the short term win, but it really puts a very low ceiling on the, on your potential for achievement, for real value add. And instead of confronting that ceiling and looking up to it and busting through it by you know making some hard choices, my worry is that we're going to sort of offload the responsibility for what's going on that's bad onto coronavirus and then just make worse decisions. So what does that mean in practical terms? It means that right now ESCOM is like the, the, the dead weight that is dragging this entire country down. And what we really need to do is retrench 10,000 workers and it sucks to be retrenched. But you know, if you get a payoff package like unemployment insurance, it can hold you through this dark time. Uh, SAA is a completely, it's a corpse, it's a zombie. And, you know, you need to let go of the zombie and take and do the triage as the doctors were doing. I have to disagree there. It's not a zombie because zombies can move. SAA is far deader than that. (laughs) It's it's deader than a dead zombie. So, you know, and as the triage, as the doctors were showing in Italy, like there are just crisis moments where you need a kind of, say we've got scarce resources, how can we direct those resources in a way that's that's actually going to give people the best chance, of, the most people the best chance of surviving? That's what we could do. But instead, what I feel like is, is in short, is like we could privatize, liquidate, and retrench the bloated civil service and SOEs and, and, and use the funds that we do have to pay for soup kitchens for children who can't go to school and usually get their food from school, to pay for pensioners who's uh, incomes have been radically reduced by the interest rate cuts and the collapse of the JSC and the collapse of the economy more broadly to pay for unemployment insurance for the retrenched people, for everyone who's, 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 who really like is at the level of calories. Like they're not thinking in money. They're thinking how many calories can I get today in order to survive so that the next day I can look for another opportunity. And it's flipping hard to look for an opportunity when, you know, there's social distancing, that means, you know, you, you're hardly welcome into the office to go and ask for a job. So a lot of people need a lot of help. And there are a lot of people that have been getting fat cat salaries and have been oozing it out. And like, you need to cut away from them and give it to the people who really need it. But my worry is that the government's going to do the exact opposite and is actually going to uh, use this opportunity to be like, we need more government overreach. We need we need to hire more people. We need to nationalize hospitals. We need to kind of sink our tentacles more deeply into the economy. If we start running out of money, we need to raid the pension pots. We need to expropriate property without compensation to keep the wheel spinning because, you know, we, we're doing this to save lives. And it's such a cri de coeur. It's, it's such a potent... Uh, punctuation mark to put at the end of any policy proposal. We need this new thing because otherwise people are going to die. And if you're not looking at the epidemiology, if you're not looking at the facts, if you're not looking at the opportunity costs, then that can just become a winning argument. And and then South Africa goes from like, maybe we'd have, you know, a rough 10 years ahead of us to like a proper, a proper collapse. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And of course, the other problem we have is beyond just this sort of uh, addiction to ideology, addiction to the comfortable way things were going. Um, We have a kind of more malicious potential here as well. So, you know, there's that famous saying, um, don't never let a crisis go to waste. Well, there's definitely going to be some people um, in government and business everywhere that will look at this thing and say, you know, how can we make the best of this for ourselves out of it? And in the case of government, it's particularly terrifying because you can see, for example, the government um, putting in very strict speech restrictions in order to prevent misinformation, which is something I think pretty much, you know, everyone can agree the spread of misinformation in a great crisis is very important. But, uh, and, Brent, and, and saying, I think this is... The spread of information, mis, the spread of misinformation in a time of crisis is dangerous. Yeah, it's very dangerous. And so, you know, one is very sympathetic to the idea that we need to suppress it. But um, yeah, the problem comes in that, you know, we talk about this, uh, we talked about this as, as a war against the virus at the beginning, right? And that's the kind of way a lot of people are phrasing this. In fact, that's the way I would phrase it. Yeah. But the thing about wars is they're different from peacetime and they...
just because we're okay with our uh, changes to our to our lives now, maybe restrictions of our rights now, doesn't mean that we should accept those things in the future. Um, it's very important that whatever powers the government takes now in this time of crisis, we as citizens, whether you think that it was right or wrong for them to do it now, demand that they take things back to the way they were as much as possible when normalcy returns. Because we know that eventually we will win the battle against the virus. And when that time comes, we need to be ready to go back uh, and restore our freedoms and our republic. Um, and there will be a lot of temptation by the people who have gained from the, the, the creeping power of whatever it might be, whether it be governments, whether it be particular organizations, uh, to hold on to that power and maintain the new status quo. Um, and I think yeah. that that's a very threat to liberty. And that's why I think in the time of war, like, you know, if you look at World War One, World War Two, you look at the big wars that Vietnam, Korea, there's always been uh, this temptation to muzzle the media entirely and to say, you know, you don't want the morale of the people and the morale of the troops to go down. So there's always been temptation to say, we're not allowed to report on defeats, only on victories. Uh, we're not allowed to report on supply chain setbacks, on, uh, you know, on especially we're not allowed to report on when things go wrong because our own general screwed up. You can't make that analysis. But I think if you really want to win a war and win the peace that comes after the war, it's got to be because the body politic is there to check on the generals. Now, soldiers, they should be in the position of following the general's orders. But citizens should be in the position of knowing whether the general screwed up and, and being like, you know, maybe we need a better general. Um, I agree with that completely because we've got a brilliant example, actually, which is what happened in Britain. So the British... Uh, initially started talking about the idea of mitigating this thing of you know uh, kind of leaving a lot of stuff open not trying to contain the whole thing letting it pass through the population and granting what they called herd immunity right which yeah. is you know just letting enough people get the virus while protecting the vulnerable there was a lot of criticism of this idea though for various uh, medical reasons for various sort of social reasons and stuff and in the end the british government changed its opinion because one of those pieces of criticism put an actual number of how many people they thought would die from the government strategy, uh, which yeah. was the Imperial King's College um, study that you referenced earlier. Um, and that meant that they changed the way they were doing things. Now, only afterwards are we going to actually be able to tell what was the right approach. But the potential, uh, the potential thing here is that, in fact, a lot of people's lives might have been saved by that criticism. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and the phrase is, you know, reason responsive. The government's got to be reason responsive. And once you, once you give up on the thought that truth is the honing beacon that we've got to all trace and say, ah, oh, you know, people are dummies and you've got to just say whatever needs to be said in order for people to get in line. If that means exaggerating how bad this is, if that means underplaying how bad it is, if that means putting out false information of some kind or another, it's worth it for the greater good. That sounds good in the short run, and it might be good for a week. But, you know, when a week becomes two weeks, a fortnight, a fortnight becomes a month, a month becomes a quarter, a quarter becomes a year. What you've done is you've made the government's actions unresponsive to reason. You've put the clutch between the engine of reason and the wheels where the rubber hits the road. And that is something in no crisis and in no peacetime that anyone can afford because that's when vested interests, when that clutch gets pushed in, that the crooks, that's when the looters, that's where they live. That's where they, that's where that virus wants to go. That's the joint where it wants to flip and grow its own arthritis that like makes that joint impossible to move afterwards and it gets stuck like that. And then you get, you know, civilization catastrophes that last not just for years, for decades, for centuries. You look at, you know, Argentina, for a hundred years, that country didn't grow. You look at China from like the 1200s to the 1700s, whatever it was. From the 1400s. From the 1400s to the 1900s. 
for like half a millennium that country screwed itself over because of basically disconnecting reason from the from the brain of the body politic and then it's just like a pendulum swinging from one extreme to another obliterating the weak and the vulnerable you know definitely um and and uh, as we talked about actually in the last episode on patronage um dysfunction can be very stable as a system for a very long yeah. time yeah yeah, and it just, I mean, I mean, it just grinds out the lives. It's just like ordinary folk. It's the difference between like living to 70 and living to 40. It's the difference between being able to sing a song that you like and being forced to sing the song that everyone else sings. It's the difference between being able to marry the person you like and sort of being hobbled in bound feet. It's, you know, it's, it's differences between life being rich and life being sort of more than a struggle. Life being a sort of series of failures uh, that you endure. Uh, yeah, and I think we can see if we if we do a sort of political political analysis of the South African uh, situation, we can see exactly how such a situation t- could develop. Because uh, Soro Ramaphosa, you know, a lot of people were beginning to kind of lose some faith in him. I mean, he was still very popular, relatively speaking. I think he had a sixty percent approval rating before this crisis hit. Yeah, there was 2019. I'd say I'd say on the trend line, 50% by the time the crisis kicks in, and now it yeah. must have spiked. Sorry, to so he he goes out and he has this you know good presidential statement. We're taking strict uh, response to it. Uh, basically, everyone praises us, even us, um, yeah. even though we're often very critical of him. Um, because yeah. we thought it was a was a the right way to approach it, and then with this uh, thing you talked about of everyone blaming the virus for for disasters in the country, you get to see the situation where Ramaphosa's power and prestige and popularity is massively enhanced by the way he's responding to the crisis, uh, yeah. and he uses that to establish himself as a very powerful leader, and then any failing can just be blamed on the virus, and so this may end up becoming the greatest thing that ever happened to Ramaphosa. It might be his political savior, um, yeah. in which case he could very easily establish himself as a sort of dysfunctional autocrat. Precisely. And, and uh, so to give, to give an so I've given one trade-off. Like what we could do is we could be like, okay, we're in a time of crisis. We've run out of money already. And now we've got this thing. We really need the money we don't have to be spending on soup kitchens and taking care of the, the sick and the elderly. Uh, so we need to cut the SOEs, we need to cut the civil service and we need to direct it there. Alternatively, here's a trade-off. Hey guys, look, it's a crisis. So what we need to do is take pensioners money. And we were already talking about taking pensioners monies to bail out all kinds of things before the crisis. But now that we've got the crisis, it went from a maybe to a definite. So, you know, sorry guys, but Every, I'm so popular and everyone, this, this halo of prestige is around my head because of the good things that I've done and all the other polit- political leaders of all the other parties kind of being with me at the table and saying this is great. So you know that I'm a good guy and that I'm just a good guy bringing bad news. Don't hate the messenger. And that's one kind of catastrophe. In terms of the broader catastrophe that you speak of, I've been speaking about and writing about Ramaphosa setting himself up to be a... Uh, a three-term, four-term president for a while. And that's because, you know, the argument that everyone makes is that it doesn't matter whether Ramaphosa is doing good or bad. What matters is that whoever would replace him is going to be worse. That's why we need to support him. That was Peter Bruce's argument. That was The Economist's argument. That was the argument of all the Ramaphoriacs who said you've got to vote for Ramaphosa in, in the 2019 election last year. Now, that argument... I know very well because I've traveled a bit in the African continent and because I've read a lot of Russian and Slav history. Every single time a dude became a dictator for life, that's been the argument. Now, I'm almost sympathetic. I'm sympathetic to that argument and sometimes it's true. Like Paul Kagame, the dictator of Rwanda, is the perfect kind of example of a benign autocrat that kind of makes my classically liberal brain spin because as much as I resent the uh, illiberties of that regime, I really struggle to think of a credible alternative 
and they've had a genocide. So recently, I'm very worried about like, you know, the next worst thing is is potentially the worst possible thing. You know what's great about Kagami? You know what makes it so confusing is that he's actually a really good leader, is that he's actually gotten really good GDP growth, is that he's actually found value add opportunities, that he actually has the spine to fire useless, corrupt, ideological idiots within his midst. You tell me one instance of Ramaphosa being anything like Kagami. You know, it's like if you really want to make Ramaphosa not look great, you, com- you compare him to Abiy Ahmed uh, in uh, Ethiopia, who who is a you know is a is a president of a constitutional democracy, making peace, fighting really hard battles, and, and doing quite well. Uh, you know, Ramaphosa is a million miles away from that. But even just to compare him to Kagame, like Ramaphosa just has none of the qualities that I'd want to see in either a cons- well, not none, but you know, as a, as a, as a as a benign autocrat, it's just it's just generally a bad idea. And even if you were going to try and make a case for it. I really struggle to see the case for Ramaphosa because in particular, he has showed a lack of courage when it comes to dismissing vipers that are sucking on South Africa's blood. Yeah, you know, one of the problems with uh, all of these kind of hypothetical situations is that at the end of the day, the defenders of Ramaphosa can always say, oh, well, no, you see, the only reason he hasn't done the good thing yet is because he's not powerful, as powerful as he could be. Uh, You know, he needs more power and then he'll be able to do it, which is, you know, a terrible argument most of the time. Um, Although... But now he's more powerful. So what I'd like to see is like, okay, with the COVID crisis, I've got to fire Ace Machashule. In times of crisis, can you really afford to have Esma Khashule, like no, still a, a, a making the big? Yeah. yeah, that's a horrifying idea to be sure. There's um, a general. There's a general that you really like in peacetime. You don't want bad generals, but like now we're being invaded. Can we not fire one bad general? Just one. <laughs> Give me one. So in conclusion, Ramaphosa must uh, fire Esma Khashule or uh, charge him with one of the many crimes he's uh, supposedly committed. Um, and, uh, well, I, I saw, you know what I saw today? Yeah. An ad for gold that was pushed by the algorithm into my Twitter feed. By gold. Yes. So it, it seems that uh, the algorithm is also agreeing with our usual take. Um, right, well, I think can we'll I call... add to the... Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, so... We've been saying buy gold for a long time. I've still got this really weird idea that I just want to put out there. So as Nick was saying earlier on, there are opportunities in a crisis for real value add, not just for seizing power towards yourself, but for actually making these better. And one of the things that one has got to expect is a lot of discretionary spending that usually goes to entertainment, to travel, to weddings and all this kind of stuff is being pulled back. If you can't go to the wedding, if you can't go to Coachella or South by Southwest or Africa burn or, you know, whatever the big, you know, expense was going to be for your year, 10,000 rand, $10,000, whatever it is you can afford. Where do you want to put that money? I think some people, especially because they're self-isolating, they're going to want to put it into their homes. It's like you stare at that like broken light fitting and that like cracked uh, kitchen tabletop or the, you know, the couch that you really don't like. And you usually only look at it so often, but you keep going to the office and keep going to your friend's house and whatever. You, you just leave it for another day. And then you think, maybe I can do that. Maybe I can go on holiday. Ah, let me go on holiday. Dude, I think a lot of people are going to want to spend their stuff on like interior decor and home improvements. And in particular, because of this fixation on hand washing, which it must be said is a bloody good idea. Sing a song, wash your hands. Dude, with everyone thinking about hygiene and interior decor, I think it's a really good time for plumbers. It's a really good time for like guys putting in bathroom fittings. And upstream of that, chrome all of the chrome that needs to go on your, on your taps and anything. So I say buy chrome. Yeah, the only problem with buying chrome is maybe it goes out of fashion because everyone's been staring at their chrome taps for months now and they hate them. Um, or I just I just do want to let uh, uh, 
people know that they really shouldn't take our financial advice too seriously because gold is currently plummeting. I mean, it started to tick up in the last sort of hour or so, <laughs> but it's really not a good investment. Yeah, no, the real the guys who are really singing are people who, as I always said, it's also a good idea, have been holding on to U.S. treasuries because when the world gets afraid, it rallies to the dollar and they buy bonds. And buying 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 U.S. bonds is like, I mean, right now the the bubble is growing, and one day that bubble is going to burst, and then that's going to be so much worse than coronavirus. Oh man, that's <laughs> going to be a that's going to be a bad bubble. Uh, let us pray that that day never comes. Anyway, um, I think we're going to call it to a close there because we have just hit an hour. Um, thank you for bearing with us if you were listening to us. Um, it's uh, it's a little bit difficult to do these over Skype, although we're getting more used to it, um, and I think soon we will be pretty good at it. Uh, it. I've looked at the stats for our podcast, and I can see that at least half of half of you basically listen to the end. So a big thanks to all of you for for putting up with us and finding joy in our ramblings. Um, and uh, Gabriel, how are we going to do the cricket sound? Are we just going to do it old school? Old school, okay. So thanks very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll catch you on next week's edition of Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. Crick, crick.